Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. It's the holiday season, which means that spirits are high. High proof, that is. On this week's Louisiana Eats, we're throwing a holiday party with some cocktail professionals. Is there a bottle of Jennifer in your bar at home? Unless you're from the Netherlands, that might not be the case. Philip Duff joins us to demystify Jennifer and explain why it's sometimes called Dutch gin. Then, Paul Hiletko takes us back to the days of the women's temperance movement and explains what motivated him to open the first distillery ever in Evanston, Illinois. Next, Austrian native Claudia Balloni shares her family's 150-year history that all began in an apricot orchard and ended in a bottle of delectable schnapps. But not the kind you're used to shooting. We're making spirits bright on this week's Louisiana Eats. Philip Duff has lived a life of liquor. Starting behind the bar at a young age in his native Ireland, Philip rose to prominence in the cocktail world as a jet-setting bartender and high-demand spirits consultant. Today, he's considered one of the world's foremost experts on gin and Jennifer, a liquor sometimes referred to as Dutch gin. We sat down with Philip to learn about these two distinct spirits and his intoxicating career. I began by asking him where his fascination with gin began. Uh, well, I think that you always want to remain a student. Uh, the moment you think you've mastered a topic, you really haven't. So I learned something new about gin in Geneva every day. Where it comes from is because I once took a job uh, for three months in Holland in the Netherlands, and I wound up staying for 17 years. So I learned to speak fluent Dutch, and I was living there, and of course the national drink there is Geneva. So because I could speak the language, read the books, visit the distilleries, I began researching it you know, very intensively. At the same time, I was traveling all around the world teaching cocktail seminars, spirit seminars, bartender seminars, and at that time, and still, gin was massively popular. It was growing, it was a bartender drink, and people wanted to hear the history. They wanted to hear all the history, not just from 100 years ago or 200 years ago, or even from the invention of gin. They wanted to be able to trace it back further. So we continue to learn. We continue to unearth new recipes. So I hope that never stops. One of the things I believe that perhaps might be confused in people's minds, particularly Americans, is the difference between gin and Jennifer. Would you explain that to us? 
That's a really good question. It's one that not enough people ask. In fact, when you submit a recipe and a formula for approval to the government here in the US, you can categorize it one of two ways and you get to choose. And one way, you call it a distilled spirit specialty, which is, you know, all the weird stuff goes in there. Or you can choose to call it a Holland gin. And that's really misleading because real Geneva doesn't taste like gin at all. What it really is, is an unaged grain distillate with a couple of botanicals. So it's really closer to being some kind of a whiskey moonshine thing than gin. Gin's radically different. And gin, as we know, it was invented by the English in England uh, at the end of the 1600s. They were trying to make Geneva, but they, for a few reasons, couldn't, didn't. And that was the birth, really, of neutral white spirit drinks like uh, gin, as we know. Geneva stayed on its own course and is still that whiskey-like, uh, moonshine-like product. And then it was a couple of hundred years until we got like genuinely fully neutral products like vodka. So Geneva is on the family tree. I don't like to say it's the mother or the father of uh, gin at all. It's in there, but they're not that closely related. And if you were to describe the taste differences to a consumer who has perhaps had a gin and tonic but has never had a Jennifer in anything, what would that be? Well, could I uh, do a little background first? Of Just course. A, a short way. What, what happened when uh, they started trying to make Geneva in England was that they didn't have the expertise. And the expertise you needed was the same kind of expertise you need to make whiskey. You need to be really good at distilling grains, right? And they weren't. Geneva always had an emphasis on beautifully distilled grains and a little botanical, just a little. You sometimes can barely pick it up, but it's there. With gin, they didn't distill the grains perhaps quite so expertly, so they put in literally 10, 20, or 100 times more botanicals. And they wound up not making Geneva, but they invented gin. So gin is intensely botanical. Most people would recognize that lovely piney, junipery tang. And they load it up. And the spirit that it's built on is a neutral spirit. Geneva is, uh, when done right, not built on a neutral spirit. It's built on a beautiful distilled grain base, right? So a whiskey fan would be very at home drinking a Geneva. Uh, and yet it would be just a little strange because it has always juniper, to a low degree, and then maybe some other things. It might have a little bit of hops in it as a botanical. It might have some citrus. It might have angelica. Botanicals that are quite familiar to gin drinkers. So gin, grain, more whiskey-ish. Uh, the botanicals are in the background. Gin is all botanicals all day long. Could you tell me, to you, what are the ingredients that make it gin? Ah, of another very good question. You're making it very easy for me. So for me, a neutral spirit. It can be any neutral spirit, and there are differences if you use a grape neutral spirit, like in G-Vine gin, for instance, or if you use grain, they are subtly different, but a neutral spirit, which means it's been distilled to 96% alcohol. And then botanicals. And I will come down, this is, you know, taking sides here, I will come down and say there should be significant amounts of juniper. It doesn't have to dominate but you must be able to taste it. It must be clear. And then after that, then you can get experimental. So the biggest choice you can make is citrus or non-citrus. So the biggest uh, gins in the world, Tanqueray and Gordon's, are non-citrus gins. They don't have any citrus peel in them. But then again, Beefeater does, Bombay Sapphire does, many others do. So 
after you've got neutral spirits and juniper, then it's like citrus or no citrus. And after that, then you can totally go crazy. So that to me, if you fulfill those basic premises, then you're a gin to me. And if you don't, uh, you may qualify to be in the category, but you're not going to be in my Christmas list. How do you drink gin as compared to how you drink Jennifer? Uh, I have a confession to make here. This is the first time. Uh, On-air live confession. I was traveling around the world as this jet-set rock star, bartender, expert, consultant, and I didn't like drinking gin. And I started drinking gin at the relatively late age of 27. Now, bear in mind, I've been a bartender since I was 15. So... I got into drinking gin because of cocktails, like delicious modern cocktails like the Bramble, right? And then I drank gin sours, gin fizzes, gin collinses. And now, uh, truth, I drink gin probably more than I drink anything else. So I like to drink gin in a martini. I think it's the, the king of drinks. I really do. And close second would be a Negroni. These are just magical drinks. You can put other liquors in there and the drink's interesting and pleasant, but I don't think anything beats gin. You mentioned that you began your career at 15. In Ireland, how does one become a bartender at the age of 15? I just walk into a bar and they'll hire you. Ah. (laughs) If you look big enough, I I grew up in a little village and there were 12 bars there in a village of 5,000 people. And of course, they'd be very busy at the weekend, but not so busy during the week. So they didn't have enough work for all that many full-time bartenders. So they would hire kids like me to be, uh, you know, barbacks and glass washers and eventually bartenders. So I really liked it. And uh, that was my start. I'm still a bartender, really. Give me just a little line on how that path took you from the age of 15 to where you are today. I was going to be a doctor. That's the thing. I was bartending uh, weekends, summers, and I got into medical school and I had to wait a year because I was too young actually to take up my place only by a couple of months. And the next year I was like, no, I don't want to be a doctor. So marketing degree, great. Marketing degree, still bartended all through college. I used to run bars in England in the summer. And I was even by then doing a lot of teaching and consulting because I had had a fantastic training in uh, my first job, you know, textbooks and uh, sales techniques, drink knowledge was an amazing uh, place to start. And then after I graduated, Ireland was an economic mess, which it generally is. And like many Irish people, I thought, I'll move to London. This will be amazing. I've already lived in London. I've worked there. I know I can get a job in a bar. It's going to be really easy. And I did. And that was it. I never looked back. One of the things that you are an expert on is history. You're a great, well-respected historian. So right now... What is the oldest gin recipe or earliest makings of a gin-like substance that you have been able to find? Uh, The first time we have a reference in print to a juniper distillate purely for recreational purposes is from 1495. Uh, It's from a privately published book. There's only one copy in the whole world. And it's in the British Library in London. And I had the privilege of actually being able to take it out and read it. Uh, It's remarkable. Um, Juniper is not dominant in there. It is, however, important because in another episode of Why My Life is Awesome, I actually got to make that. My friends from G-Vine Gin invited me to France with Dave Wondrich and Dave Broom. And we recreated that recipe. And just for the hell of it, we also made it without juniper. And the juniper was actually really important. Right, so that's the, f- the oldest recipe I know of for a recreational juniper 
distillate. And from then, it kind of went so incrementally, you can't really say gin was born on this day. You know, right. one of the biggest milestones was in 1830, when an Irish guy called Anus Coffey copied, invented, and somewhat stole other people's inventions, and he registered the first continuous still. Because with that, you could make genuinely neutral vodka. So you could say from then, uh, we really, really, really had, had gin. Oh, Philip, I have waited a long time to have this conversation with you, and I am so grateful that you came to speak with us today on Louisiana Eats. Thank you. The pleasure's all mine. It was an honor to be here on Louisiana Eats with you. Thank you so much. That's Philip Duff, renowned expert on gin and Jennifer. Coming up next, we meet Paul Haletko, who founded a distillery in the historical epicenter of the temperance movement in the U.S., Evanston, Illinois. Louisiana Eats returns after a break. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Brennan's Restaurant, home of the original breakfast at Brennan's and flaming Bananas Foster. Now open for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and private events Thursday through Sunday at 417 Royal Street in the French Quarter. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. My name is Paul Holetko. I am the founder and president of Few Spirits. Uh, We are a small distillery located in Evanston, Illinois, just right outside Chicago. Located on the northern border of Chicago, Evanston, Illinois prides itself on being the hometown of a long list of big names, like John and Joan Cusack, Seth Meyers, and D.A. Pennebaker, just to name a few. The city's also known as the birthplace of Prohibition and home to the second head of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, Frances Elizabeth Willard. Frances Elizabeth Willard was just a hundred years ahead of her time. Uh, She's the most amazing woman, and there's always more to learn about her. Uh, If you go to the U.S. Capitol in the Rotunda, there are 50 statues representing the 50 most famous people uh, from each of the states. And out of those 50 statues, only one woman is deemed important enough to be in the U.S. Capitol. And so we're really proud as Evanston residents that, you know, the only woman in U.S. history important enough to be in the Capitol is one of ours. Due to the efforts of Willard and the WCTU, Evanston was a dry city for nearly a century, only beginning to allow a limited number of licenses for alcohol sales as late as 1972. 
In 2011, Paul Letko founded Few Spirits, the first distillery ever in Evanston, Illinois. And although it's only a coincidence, the name Few Spirits just happens to share the initials of Francis Elizabeth Willard. What would this temperance leader have to say about alcohol flowing so freely in her hometown? My guess is she wouldn't be all that happy, but at the same time, you also have to look at what was going on at the time around the world. Uh, if you look at historical drinking patterns, you know, when she was around, average per capita consumption of whiskey was over 15 gallons per person. Uh, the men that were drinking were drinking a truly absurd amount of whiskey. And this is at a time when there were no protections against domestic violence. There was no social safety net. So in viewed in that context, this campaign against alcohol, which today seems misguided, uh, maybe it's not such a bad idea. But you know, drinking today is far more constrained and... You know, while she, maybe she's not the happiest person and everybody tries to make jokes about her rolling over in her grave, you know, I'd like to think she would be okay with it. The story of few spirits is one infused with not only the history of Evanston and Chicago, but the history of Paul's family, a moving saga that's been a source of inspiration to him. Uh, before World War II, my family owned a major brewery and was now the Czech Republic. I uh, lost it for the war and although my grandparents or my grandfather survived the camps the rest of the family was wiped out and so just as we are experiencing a rebirth of the whiskey and the cocktail and the craft spirit scene ideally we like to think of few as kind of being a rebirth of my own family legacy in the alcohol business did you know your grandfather i didn't know him very well he was a challenging person i did have the uh opportunity to meet him on several times. Uh, but as far as a direct, continuous personal relationship, I wasn't there. Um, did, did they emigrate to the United States? Yeah. So after the war, he actually met my grandmother in the holding camps after the war because you know, nobody knew what to do with all these people. <laughs> how did they survive? Um, however they could. And so immediately after the war, they ended up in Prague. Uh, where my grandfather specialized in creating paperwork that was perhaps less recognized by the official folks that created similar paperwork, uh, but was sufficient to uh, put people into Israel. Ah. Uh, until one day, the uh, folks who did produce the official paperwork uh, found him, and uh, he sprinted and outran him, grabbed uh, my grandmother, grabbed my two-year-old mother, and they hightailed it to the U.S. where they effectively hid. What did they do um, for a livelihood in the U.S.? Because in, in what I have researched, it seems that perhaps your grandfather never quite got over losing the brewery. He never quite did. He always tried to get it back. And it was a, I don't want to call it a passion or a vendetta, but it was, you know, he always wanted to get it back to kind of get that reconnection, uh, to gain something he lost. And when he died, you know, I wanted to kind of reconnect with that as well. He was a very um, contrary gentleman, but uh, I think he'd be pretty happy to see what uh, we've been able to do and build, you know, at least as an attempt to honor his legacy. If you were to describe the flavor profile of your liquor portfolio, 
Um, what is it designed to taste like? What What are the tastes you're going after? Well, we're always trying to do something that's different. Um, we want to add to the conversation around spirit rather than just copy. There's no fun in making something that already exists. And also in a really competitive spirits business, uh, no one's going to pay 20 bucks more for a bottle of whiskey that tastes just like something else. So you know, we try to look at what's out there. We try to express our creativity in a way that maybe the consumer doesn't have that opportunity to get something right now. So, for example, our few bourbon is going to be a very spicy bourbon. You know, we always say it doesn't taste like Kentucky bourbon primarily because it's not Kentucky bourbon. Um, <laughs> it's Illinois bourbon. It's for Illinois one thing. bourbon, right? <laughs> and it's not. You know, we don't pretend it is, and it's not. You know, we're. But that's okay. The boys in Kentucky and the girls in Kentucky make some really freaking good bourbon. And ours just tastes different. And some people might like theirs better. Maybe a few like ours better. And that's kind of what we are going for is that we're different. If you like us, join us. And if you don't like it, let's be friends. And you drink what you like and we'll drink what I like. But we'll be together drinking responsibly and hopefully coming together as friends and family. What has been the most amazing or fulfilling sort of response that you have gotten about any of the products you're producing? We've had a couple people uh, come up and tell me uh, about how much uh, happiness we've brought into your life uh, because around uh, nine to ten months after they spent a night with a bottle of our spirits, uh, their baby was born. <laughs> And so that's just, you know, that's always magical. But I think the most, you know, there's a story that uh, you couldn't even write if you were a fiction writer. Uh, but, you know, I met this guy at an event and he's told me that he'd been estranged from his father for almost 30 years. Hadn't said one word to his own father for that long. And he got a taste of our rye whiskey. And for whatever reason, he decided, you know what, my dad would like that. And so out of the blue, he calls up his dad after almost 30 years. And a week later, they were together sharing a bottle of rye whiskey that I made. And they reconnected and have been, they've had a relationship ever since. And to me, that just really signifies all that is great about this business of spirits and cocktails is that ability to connect and to be a part of the social life and the family life. That's that's what is important in life. Paul, if we were to come and visit you in Evanston, Illinois, at Few Spirits, what would our experience be like? It's a great experience, or at least I'd like to think so. You know, you walk down an alley and you walk by some dumpsters and you feel like maybe I shouldn't be here. Maybe this is, maybe I'm in the wrong spot. And then you open up the door and you get this smell and you can smell the ferment and you get the cereal grains and the corn and the malt and you can hear the stills going and maybe there's a little bit of steam in the air from the boiling mash and you've got the sounds of the pumps going and you could see this copper and all the stainless steel from the fermenters and there's people working and you've got this little bar and you can see what we do, and we'll tell you about what we do. We'll tell you why we do, and really help to educate and train you, and let you know this is this is what we do. And if you like it, come join us. And again, if you don't like it, that's okay. Let's share a drink and be friends. It must be so exciting to know that your product has spread so far across the world. It's really amazing, and you know we'll see pictures of our products, you know stuff that I made. Uh, with my hands north of the Arctic Circle in Sweden. 
and I've gone into bars in Japan, and there we are. And I turn around a corner in Barcelona, and there we are. Uh, we're on bars in New York, L.A., San Francisco, Seattle. Uh, we're on bars here in the great city of New Orleans. We put all of ourselves, everything goes into this. And it's really remarkable and rewarding to see that people are reacting uh, with that same enthusiasm to what we love. Paul, thank you so much for taking time to visit with us. Oh, thank thanks, you. Poppy. Thanks for having me. That was Paul Hletko, founder and master distiller of Few Spirits. Baloney, and I'm now the fifth generation of the company Baloney. We are distilling and processing apricots since 1872. While many types of fruit are essential to the distillation of a number of liquors, there's something particularly appealing about the apricot. With its sweet, sprightly, and aromatic flavor, this tiny orange-colored fruit delights the palate. For almost 150 years, the small family-run company Balloni has been cultivating apricots in their Austrian orchards, distilling the fruit into liqueurs and schnapps. Claudia Balloni is a member of the fifth generation of her family to continue this tradition. When we spoke with her about the company, she began by explaining the difference between schnapps with one P and schnapps with two peas. Claudia made it clear to me that her family's schnapps fits firmly within the one pea category. In America, schnapps uh, with the two peas, it's low alcohol content, around 15%, uh, and is sweet. It has sugar in it. A schnapps with one pea, all from Europe, doesn't have sugar in it. It's a poor distillate. We have 40% uh, alcohol in it. This is one of the most traditional Austrian uh, drinks, uh, schnapps you can get. Even though we are a little company, a little family business, we want to introduce and to show people how different our product is to other liquors. It's the perfect balance between the fruitiness, the sweetness, and the alcohol content. It's incredible that your family has been concentrated on distilling an apricot liqueur for that long. Why apricots and how did this begin? It's actually a very, very romantic story. My great-great-grandfather, <laughs> he was from northern Italy and came from a Grappa dynasty. And it was a very, very small one. And he wanted to seek a better life and move to Austria. And there he found his great love in the, in the Wachau. It's a Pictures Valley at the Danube River, and there were apricot trees all over, and the locals just had it as fruits or jams, and he had like the skills and the knowledge from this 
his heritage and he was like because he'd been making grappa yeah, he made in grappa all over yeah. yeah and so in essence this is sort of an apricot eau de vie yes you can say that and he had the passion and he wanted to continue the passion and so he founded the very first distillery in the Wachau Valley and we have continuing it until now we, the recipes are the same as it was uh, back uh, in the times we started in the year 1872 and over the decades uh, we focused really on the speciality of apricots. We have 1,500 trees on our own. We pick them up ourselves. That means I get up at 5 o'clock in the morning during the harvest, go to the orchards and pick them up and bring them to our company to mash them and ferment them and then distill them. When your great-great-grandfather got there from Italy to Austria, yeah. that is truly when he discovered the pleasure of the apricot? Yes. He was not familiar with this fruit, right? He was amazed by the taste and the flavor. And the apricots are very sensible. The aroma is very sensitive and you can destroy it very easily. If you, for example, are stored in wooden barrels or something, you have to do it with glass at that time. Nowadays we do it with steel. But it is an art to capture the flavor of the apricot. Apricots are so elusive and so quick. I mean, even in the United States where we see out-of-season fruits, there's just a little brief period of time when we yes. see the apricot. It's such a special fruit. We can say approximately that we have every second year an extreme good harvest. And if we have one year a gap, which the harvest is not that good, um, we have a storage. Like we stored it high volume distillate, and so we can bridge a complete year without losing any quality. How long do the apricot trees grow? How old are these orchards? Some of them are quite old, uh, in a few decades. But uh, we always plant every year around 100 new ones. So they are quite tiny trees, so they take around two years to carry fruits. But we also um, have a lot of farmers in the region who ha have their own little gardens and they bring uh, their apricots to us. And they have all certified gardens, like our, our gardens, because of heritage protection. In Austria, how do people drink your apricot liqueur? Normally, um, we have the tradition to drink it straight, especially that the liqueur are maybe on the rocks and the schnapps, room temperature or a little bit chilled because if it's too cold, the flavor of the apricot gets isolated and you cannot taste it anymore. However, as I see it here, a very strong cocktail culture. Uh, we are also moving slowly in this direction, uh, general Central Europe speaking. The apricot liqueur, you can just... Uh, put in your sparkling wine, give a fruity note to it. Or if you're a beer lover, uh, do a dry beer and a shot of apricot liquor in it. And oh my goodness, I can only imagine what it could do on a cake. Yes, that's true. It's like we call it uh, the Austrian honey because the liquor is a little bit thick in liquidity, uh, but not too, too much. And so it goes very well over cakes or ice cream. Chocolate is generally... Uh, the best flavor to carry the apricot. Mm -hmm. Chocolate and apricot. Yeah. Yum. 
Well, everyone loves apricots. <laughs> and I'm so grateful we had this chance to speak. Thank you. Thank you so much, Thank you so Claudia. much, too. Thank you. That was Claudia Belloni, fifth generation of Belloni, a company that distills and processes apricots in Austria. What is the role bitters play in a cocktail? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, just 40 minutes from New Orleans, Louisiana North Shore's Tammany Taste features the bounty of the bayou and rich culinary culture from award-winning chefs, mom-and-pop restaurants, specialty bakers, and creative mixologists. To discover more, request the newly released Explore the North Shore Inspiration Guide for local stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, where New Orleans has come to play and get away for more than a century. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is the role bitters play in a cocktail? I've heard bitters described as seasoning for cocktails, almost as significant in drinks as salt and pepper are in food. Bitters, as we know them today, were said to have begun right here in New Orleans in the early 19th century at the Royal Street Apothecary Shop of Antoine Amade Peychaud. Peixos bitters are an essential ingredient in the classic Sazerac cocktail, but my favorite way to enjoy them is with seltzer water. While you're partaking in all those high-proof cocktails this holiday season, you might want to consider pacing yourself with what I call Poppy's Pink Drink. I simply pour some bubbly water into a stemmed glass. No ice, please. And then, I add about 10 shakes of Peixos bitters. It turns the seltzer a lovely shade of pink, and I just love the taste. It's said to settle your stomach and cure hangovers as well, but that won't be necessary if you alternate my pink drink with some of those high-proof choices. I'm Poppy Tooker, and Poppy's pink drink makes for some good Louisiana drinks.
My name is Alexandre Gabriel. I am the owner and the master blender of Maison Ferrand. And uh, we produce Pierre Franc Cognac, but also Plantation Rum and Citadel Gin. In 1989, an encounter with one of the oldest winemaking families in what's called Grand Champagne in the Cognac region of France inspired Alexandre Gabriel to found Maison Ferrand. His goal? To make the world's best cognac using age-old craft-based production methods. Since then, the company has expanded to produce rum and gin. Alexandre joined us in the studio to talk cognac and share his fascinating personal story. Well, I am so thrilled to have this opportunity to sit down with you and talk in particular about cognac because from what I have read and seen, you're sort of regarded as the mad genius of cognac. I don't know that everyone who listens to the radio show is aware that cognac is both a drink and a city in France. Absolutely. Uh, mad genius, by the way, I'm not sure uh, about uh, genius, definitely not mad, probably. <laughs> <laughs> cognac is a little city in France, 18,000 people. That's where I live, about three uh, three weeks every month. And uh, we are a distiller. And cognac is such a wonderful drink. It is, as you know, made with grapes that we distill and that we age. Probably uh, the oldest uh, sipping spirit that was purely distilled for pleasure and to be aged. You know, in Cognac, we have some of the oldest barrel makers with an incredible know-how. I am trained as a master blender, and we always say a great master blender must be a cask uh, uh, or somebody who knows how to build a cask because the aging is with the cask. Now, what I found fascinating about Cognac is that it's got this incredible story the 19th century in Cognac was such a beautiful story, research of flavors, of using grape varieties and, and using different barrelings and things like this. And um, what I love is to go back into this heritage and revisit it. And some people think it's being a heretic, and I tend to think it's being a purist. But that's up for debate because it results in Cognacs that do taste different. Uh, I believe that Pleasure comes with knowledge, but also from diversity. If you taste always the same, even if it's the best song, do you want to listen to that song all the time? In the old days, people didn't think so about cognac. And cognac's got so much know-how. See, I am trained as a master blender. It's a 20-year program where you depend on somebody who's really basically giving to you all this centuries of knowledge. Is this something that has been in your family for many generations? How did you become interested in this? It actually, no. In my case, I grew up in Burgundy, different regions, on a farm, a vineyard, you know, obviously making wine. And um, it's just, I met a family and I ended up buying up the, the business that was uh, 30 years ago. I was barely drinking age, you see? Uh -huh. and, and, you know, sometimes, and I guess you connect the, 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 spot, the spots afterwards, but I kind of felt I had it into me. And you know, you're young, you have no doubts, you just move on. And I was uh, taken into almost a custody by a, an old guy, a master blender, who for some wild reason thought I had a talent, a nose and a palate, and decided to train me. And many years in the five first years, I thought it was a crazy thing because it's so demanding and it's like being trained as a chef, you know, you're being 
not always well treated, but you learn so much. What is a day like when you're training in this work? Tasting at least 60 cognacs or 80 cognacs every day. And if you're not done, you have to do it at night. One day I find myself in the evening in my bathtub because I was so you know, broken by a long, long day. I was doing a tasting in the bathtub <laughs> and, and the cognac glasses float in water. I can tell you that because I was so tired, I guess a little bit drunk, but I was studying. And so, yeah, there's harsh days like this when you think, is it really for me? And then there's beautiful days when you start really being, you know, seeing your talent flourishing. And that's beautiful. And I thought and I dedicated my life to research the work of old masters in cognac and also trying to really go back, plunge back our roots into ancient forms of cognac. And I've done the work with an American guy, actually, uh, the 1840 uh, Ferrand, his 1840 original formula. I worked with a wonderful man, David Wondrich, that I like to call an intellectual gourmand, which in my language is, is, a, is a great compliment. And with David, we, we worked on the uh, trying to go back to this very robust, intense cognac that my grandmother would drink, actually, with a round big ice cube or then in America people make great cocktails with and I love it straight as well sipping and it's higher in proof very concentrate and 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 gives you a lot of flavors and that I think is one expression that I think is fascinating what a beautiful thing that you have that memory of your grandmother drinking cognac with a big ice cube when does that go back to well you and know um, in france ice in the old days was a fancy thing and yes. you know so if you had a, a money you'd have an ice pit where actually you would freeze ice in the winter and store it way down in the ground and in the in the summer you would pull it out and make drinks and even invite friends and you'd be that would be the fancy thing so ice was really a fancy thing and you'd drink you know a cognac with an ice cube or you know finalo as we call it would be a little bit of uh, seltzer water you know this big beautiful uh, yes. uh, siphon you see in france flea market now that was to drink cognac but you see to drink cognac that way you needed a very intense very flavorful cognac and that's what we intended to do with the 1840 uh, ferrand cognac the re-edition is we call it original formula that was what we did. And you see, now I'm looking at different aspects of cognac. As I speak with you, I'm doing research about the barreling of cognac. You see, you think, let me ask you a question. Spirits are aged in what type of barrel? You think oak probably, right? Usually, American that's oak, what we, yes, you know, or French oak. Actually, cognac in the 18th, 19th century used chestnut, acacia, mulberry, wild cherry. Really? And it's delicious. Yet, in 1945, it was actually forgotten in the AOC. Probably because at the time there were other worries. Just think about it. You yeah. know, the end of Second World War and things. And I've done the experiments for the uh, past 10 years. It's beautiful. Have you it's come wonderful. across some of these old bottles that well, you taste? It's funny because when you talk to an old master blenders, you see, I'm 51 year old in Cognac. As long as Master Blender goes, I'm a young rookie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the people, I'm part of a group of Master Blender. The guy who chairs it is 95. Oh, my. And so when he wants to know what the young guys think, he's asking me. And, uh, and so, but these people will tell you they have in their cellar, and they talk like a secret. I have one in Acacia. You have to come and taste. Yet, we cannot sell it as cognac anymore. And that's okay. So we are doing an edition. It's a cognac we call Renegade Barrel 
which is not a cognac. We have to write eau de vie. Fair enough that we have to play by the rule. On the back, we can explain how it's made. And that's just for people who really want to excite their taste buds and go back to just a take, a very technical take, but beautiful. You got these sweet tannins. It's so refined. Your taste buds are just all excited to go. It's like discovering a new planet of taste in, in the world of, of cognac. If you had to name your rarest moment tasting a cognac, what is your big memory from all your years working in this business when you were just, oh? You know, they are very rare moments. It's like a counter with a barrel or Demi Jones in the cellar. That for some reason, you know, uh, we, we, even though I researched that all my life, we don't always understand what happens in the barrel. And sometimes a barrel just blossoms out, almost like a person, you know, of kids and they reach puberty and then suddenly there's something in them. You see that's just going to be them. It's exactly what happens. You see, as master blenders, we don't say we're aging cognac. We say nous élevons les cognacs. We elevate the cognacs because we taste them every three months to like you elevate a child, élever un enfant. And, and that's the role of a master blender. That's why we still taste 60 cognacs a day, is to just take these, these barrels to full maturity. We will swap them from one barrel to the other. We will restave the, the barrel, change the end of the barrels. We're we working, helping this cognac to reach its fullness. And sometimes you come across recently a 1972 cognac that we really worked on and we opened the, 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 the door of this cellar, went to it, opened that barrel, tasted it in three months, and it was like it's almost like staring at you and said, I'm ready. And and these are special moments. Of course, there's other moments where you, sh- you like to share a great product, where somebody, you know, ha-ha moments with uh, sometimes a competitor who brings his best and I bring my best and we're together and it's there. I have a few moments like this that are very special. Another and the last moment is... I had three Demi Jones, these big bottles of, six, of 1806 cognac, distilled when Napoleon was still ruling France. We sold two, made good money on it, and the last one, 30 liters, I kept 10 liters for each of my three children. And I decided that they would, be, they would have it when they're 25, but before they can drink it, provided my, my wife and I agree, you know, not like a party when they're 18 and yes, which is drinking course. age in oh, France, no, no, no. where they say, let's invite friends and drink like 10 liters of 1806 cognac. You know, <laughs> I just no. want to make sure. <laughs> and when Ariane, uh, my daughter, uh, uh, reached uh, 18, she said, uh, Mommy, Daddy, do you mind if we open one of the 1806 bottles? I'm 18 years old. And we went to a little cafe in Paris called uh, uh, Café Moderne, which is actually a wonderful cocktail place in Paris by good friends. Uh, Mido is the owner. And uh, we opened a bottle of 1806. We had a friend from, uh, from America. Uh, of course, the bartenders behind the bar had their fair share of that bottle. Yes. And it was a group thing. We're a very simple setting where we were drinking probably the most expensive bottle of cognac in this planet. And that was a rare moment I'll remember all my life is my daughter, uh, first child, going into uh, adulthood. And I think cognac is for that type of events as well. Alexandra, it is such an honor to have had this time with you. Thank you so much for opening up your chamber of secrets and giving us a little peek into the magical world 
that you have in cognac. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. That was Alexandre Gabriel, founder and master distiller of Maison Ferrand. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and videos, too. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. D'Agostino's all-natural preservative-free pasta is available in traditional forms as well as their signature alligator, crawfish, and fleur-de-lis-shaped pastas. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by The Bourbon House. From oysters to redfish, serving fresh Gulf seafood and American whiskey on Bourbon Street. Now open every day for lunch and dinner, 11 a.m. till 8 p.m. Visit TheBourbonHouse.com to learn more. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.